More than the clothes we wear, style is about the way we move through the world. On this episode of Beyond Style Matters, I talk with investigative fashion and culture journalist Dana Thomas. Is fashion killing the planet? While that theory may have its detractors, there's no question that the textile industry is one of the world's biggest polluters, and the breakneck speed at which fast fashion is consumed has ended up being an environmental nightmare. Enter Dana Thomas, the Paris-based fashion journalist who's never been afraid of digging behind the seams and telling it like it is. Dana, who's written extensively for Newsweek, Vogue, and the New York Times, to name a few, had already authored two eye-opening bestsellers, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, and Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, before penning her latest expose, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. In this new book, Dana takes a hard look at all the damage the fashion industry has caused and the movement afoot that's advocating and implementing change. Dana Thomas, welcome to this episode of Beyond Style Matters. I am so happy to uh, be on this podcast with you because I have always had such reverence for your work, besides the fact that you're just a fabulous person. You're a very fearless person. And that's something, you. yeah, we don't meet a lot of fearless people in fashion. I mean, there are some, some really good ones, but uh, a lot of people just, you know, sort of go along propping up the system because they don't want to ruffle feathers, but you have always been very outspoken. How did that yeah. happen? <laughs> Yeah, go figure. You, yeah, but you know your your latest uh, book, and you've written uh, some incredible books. Fashionopolis really uh, points a finger at uh, fashion and blames it for a lot of the ills of uh, climate change and just the, the condition of a planet in general. Um, yet you also do have hope. It's not a totally pessimistic book, which is nice. Yeah. Tell me why you decided this area was something that you really wanted to delve into. Well, you know, it's it's something that's been part of my upbringing in a sense, growing up as a kid in the 70s. I was just speaking with somebody about this yesterday. I don't remember who it was who said, you know, this was what we were do we were talking about in the 70s uh, with ecology. Remember ecology. And so I was a little kid then, and I remember the first Earth Days when we went out and planted trees at school, and, and then we had hippies as our student teachers. And so they would have class outside, and we would go foraging for things and then look at them under microscopes. And, you know, we were implicated, nature was implicated in our education in a way that got lost after that in the 80s and the 90s, and now is coming back again. So it's always been a part of my life. My mother always had an organic vegetable garden as well. And, and I had a pony when I was growing up. And so I understood, you know, how the whole nature of taking the manure from the farm and then putting it in the garden, it all came together and worked. So this has always been kind of one of my passions. But more importantly, with my books, you know, I've written three now, Deluxe, Gods and Kings, and now Fashionopolis. I use the fashion industry to talk about bigger think ideas because we all get dressed in the morning so we can understand this. Um, and I just thought it was a really easy 
it's an easier way to talk about the environment and about human rights. If I'm talking about it by deconstructing the blue jeans you're wearing and you go, oh, okay. The cotton in these jeans comes from this kind, this is what kind of impact it had. And the indigo had this kind of impact. And the woman who was crushed by Rana Plaza factory collapse was sewing blue jeans when that happened. So then you can start relating to it more as opposed to my, my grandfather was an author and he was an economist and he wrote similar themed books, you know, very, um, uh, he was a protectionist in trade and he wrote books on trade, but they were so dry because he was talking about, you know, really intellect. He about, talked about the arguments intellectually and, and I try to bring it a little bit closer, which is of course what my journalism career mm-hmm. taught me to do, to take things that are very complicated and bring it to a kind of way of understanding. Anyone can understand what you're talking about. And so that's why I've tried to do and and bring it close to home, closer to home. While we're on the subject of sustainability, just a quick word from our sponsor, TSC, today's shopping choice, to let you know that we're proud to be offering a mixed bag of brands these days. Brands who more and more are making sustainability a priority. From pre-loved, save the duck, and free flow active to Canadian designers, Hilary McMillan and Shannon Pissarro, the conversation about sustainability is growing louder. And all the innovation we're seeing in clothing and accessories that are being produced responsibly and ethically gives us all hope. We're inspired by the escalating variety of all these wonderful planet-friendly products that are being created, pieces that are emblematic of the powerful new movement that's afoot. And we promise there'll be a lot more of these types of exciting brands coming your way. So check us out at tse.ca because your sustainable style matters. When did you first start becoming aware of the fact that there was so much bad that was being done by the fashion industry by, you know, by something like a pair of blue jeans? Yeah, I had no idea. And I've been covering the industry for 30 years. And the more I dug, the more I was like, holy camoly. And I visited a lot of factories in my time, right? (laughs) From Deluxe alone, I visited the Gucci factory, the Louis Vuitton factory, the Hermes workshops, you know, because it was about the luxury fashion industry. But I visited a lot of clothing factories. I went down and visited factories in Mauritius, you know. I've (laughs) I've seen everything, right? I thought until I visited factories in Bangladesh. And then I understood then I understood everything. I was like, I had no, we all hear about sweatshops and we hear about bad working conditions, but we don't, you don't understand it. You don't see it until you've actually gone and see it. And, and once I did, I was like, wow, this is, this is, you know, one step up from corporate colonialism. It's really, it's really shocking. And, um, so I, that, but what? Why did I get into it? I don't. I mean, it just sort of seemed. That's one of the journalism things. Um, not that I compare myself to Keith Richards, but I remember one time reading that Keith. Somebody asked Keith Richards, "How do you write a song?" And he said, "I don't know, man. I just put up my antenna, and it comes in, and it just like comes down into my body, and it's like that's it. You know, I don't know. I just." could tell that now through my reporting, through my just looking at things and what was happening, having my, you know, what was catching my attention, 
but also just what I was hearing and what people were talking more and more about that the next thing was going to be fat uh, humanity and the planet, you know, human rights and, and climate change. And that's always been part of my job to have a crystal ball and, and look to the future, whether I was covering, you know, culture for Newsweek or, or the writing about people for the Washington Post or, or for the New York Times style section. I've always been saying, like, this is what's going to come next. We even had an issue at Newsweek every, at the end of every year of who's next. And I had to be like, okay, this is who we think is going to be the star next year or coming. So, but that's because when you're a reporter and you've got your ear to the ground, you can kind of you know, see into a crystal ball mm-hmm. and say, this is coming next. I worked for a woman who was a master of that. And that's Amy Spindler at the New York oh, Times, who we lost about 15 oh, years ago to breast cancer. And I can't believe it's been that person. long already. Such a brilliant, oh, a brilliant writer and a genius reporter. And she didn't just see what was coming. She actually made things come. She would just be like this. She made things come like, I think Diana Vreeland made things come. You know what I mean? Like she just would start, she saw like Jeremy Scott before anyone saw Jeremy Scott and just kept writing about Jeremy Scott until Jeremy Scott became a thing. (laughs) (laughs) She would do that. She would say like, and now we're all going to go to Rome. And she, you know what? She was right. We all didn't want to go to Rome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, interesting because, you know, there is definitely a movement afoot and you're uh, certainly uh, one of the strongest voices on the platform, you know, in the fashion arena. And you've certainly fueled a lot of uh, fires by the work that you've done thus far. So you uh, definitely are going to be part, uh, already are part of the change. And uh, that's so inspiring to me, too. This book came out a couple of years ago, but you started- 18 months. It feels like eternity. I know. <laughs> wow. Wow. Interesting that it would come out just not long before this pandemic, you know, swept over everything. Oh, gosh, and it came once out before. again, changed, I think, um, our attitudes about clothing and fashion and consumerism to some degree. Would you agree that? I uh, hope so. uh, When it came out, we came out in New York Fashion Week. It turned out to be the same week that Greta Thunberg was doing her great speech at the UN. Not that I saw that coming, but maybe I did. Who knows? I mean, I've never heard of her, but there was definitely, it was part of the zeitgeist of the moment that this is a serious, before COVID, this is, this is the subject. Um, And it was interesting because I was at a dinner about two weeks afterwards during London Fashion Week, a week later. And one of the editors at one of the major glossies in the UK came to, sat down next to me and she said, everyone's reading your book in the front row and saying, what are we doing sitting here doing what we're doing? We're having a complete existential crisis because of your book in the middle of Fashion Week. I was like, good. This is a good thing. Um, I don't know if it really has changed anybody's business tactics. I know Deluxe did, but um, because CEOs wrote to me and said, we didn't realize how we'd lost our way and we're going to get back on on path where we should be. Um, Because COVID changed so much too, but it definitely changed how consumers have shopped. Many have written to me and told me, and I see it on Instagram and I hear it on Twitter, but also people just like write to me and tell me that they don't look at their closet in the same way. And I think, well, that's good. You know, little by little, one by one. Somebody told me a story. There's a very, I don't know if it's a book or a story about a boy who said, I have to write a big story about birds 
a school paper and how do I do it? And his father said, bird by bird. So, you know, person by person, uh, yeah. you get, you, you, you affect change little by little. When did you start behaving differently or when did your own personal attitude towards fashion, towards the way you shop for the clothes that you wore change? Because obviously the minute you started learning about what was yes. going on, you must have had a real, ooh, yes, the more I did research on particularly the fast fashion brands, the hardest part was to get my daughter to stop going because she's, she's 20 now, but she was like full on 16. So whenever she now says, well, this is, she had something on the other day. She says, secondhand mama, secondhand. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like she just knows. Yeah. yeah really, you can't do that anymore. But, um, you know, I was a thrift shopper when I was in college because we didn't have any money and the Salvation Army had great clothes for a dollar. Um, I've always been one to wear vintage pieces and keep things. My daughter's now wearing my old blue jeans from the 1980s and they look great on her. And, um, and I've always been one to sort of recycle things as best as you can. So that never really changed. And when I was in my 20s in Washington, D.C., I would wear my mother's beautiful cocktail dresses from the sort of the breakfast at Tiffany era of the late fifties and early sixties and the early Kennedy years. And they were just glorious. And every time I went out one of them, I was like, what is that fantastic dress? And, uh, and I'd say, you know, it's 30 years old, 40 years old. And, um, and so I've always done that, but thinking more about buying organic cotton and thinking about recycled cashmere and um, thinking about cruel free silk that's all come because of the research I was doing with the book. And when I saw the difference and I learned about how terrible conventional cotton is, I didn't realize how much of our cotton is GMO, 99% until I started digging. I didn't realize the impact of the cash, on the cashmere industry and how it had grown four times in 20 years and that there's desertification setting in in Mongolia because there's four times as many goats grazing on the same amount of land and they're ripping up all the grasses by the roots and, and has just is decimating Mongolia on a climate level, on an economic level. It's a disaster. I had no idea. And then I did know about how grim the, the silk industry is and boiling the cocoons with the larva alive, the caterpillars alive inside and everything. But you think, okay, we've been doing that for 3,000 years in China. It's, it's a, you know, one of those arts, it's quite kind of remarkable. But I didn't know that there is such an alternative, cruelty-free silk, until I started working on the book. And so when I have the occasion to have cruelty-free silk something as opposed to regular silk, then I go for it. And it's great. Mm-hmm. It's just as beautiful. You are also um, are buying less, buying maybe more less. expensive things, but uh, that whole idea that less is more. And absolutely, uh, how how does that work for uh, for businesses though? In general, I mean, are are you looked at now as someone who's trying to you know thwart their growth or success? <laughs> well, I think they're all in a panic right now after the last year and everything is thwarted their, their growth and their success. Um, and that's actually given them a moment to reset. I actually wrote a big piece about this for British Vogue, the reset of the calendar of, of growth, of um, overproduction, because a lot of it is simply overproduction. We produce 100 billion 
clothing items a year, at least. It's somewhere between 100 and 120. And we only sell 80%, 20% winds up in the bin before it's ever even hits the shop floor. That kind of waste is, you know, the economies of scale in theory saves you money. But if you're looking like in this column on that Excel spreadsheet of this PL, but in the global picture, it's waste. It's wasteful and waste is costly on so many different levels. And so it's causing brands to stop overproducing. So maybe I'm buying less, but that means there's also less on the sales rack sitting there getting marked down, marked down, marked down, and marked down. There's less getting destroyed because it didn't get sold. You know, there's a there's a happy medium there that we don't have to overshop and burn through our clothes. The average garment today is worn seven times before it's thrown away. Um, and also don't have to overproduce, which is a really important readjustment that I think is necessary in the industry. There have been a whole handful of uh, champions, though, for the cause, and, and and many of them, most of them, it seems that you talk about in your book, are women. A lot of really brilliant women Fantastic across the United women. States and some in the UK that are doing revolutionary things with their companies to to regenerate fabric uh, and to come up with new innovative ways of of repurposing and recycling and, and just giving new life to stuff that, you know, otherwise would totally be cast away in landfill. Why do you think so many women are taking up uh, this cause? Why, why is it a female thing? Well, I asked this to several of them and, and several of them responded the same way. We had this mothering instinct, this mother earth instinct that we just want to protect and take care of things. And it's in our nature to do so. But also, I found that there's a, two kinds of women doing this. There's sort of women my age in their 50s who have been working in the industry for decades, working their way up, working their way up, and then reaching a plateau that is blocked firmly by that glass ceiling. They are not CEOs. They are not running the joint. They are, they are always... And they're, they, they got tired of the over-talking in meetings. Mm. They got tired of not being elevated to the position they really should be and doing all this work and, and having the men take the glory and the, and the money. But they had all the experience. And they're good managers. So instead of trying to beat through that glass ceiling, they just stepped out and went and started their own thing on the side, a brand new thing over here, taking all that knowledge and going, you know what? We're just going to create our own thing instead of trying to play the man's game. Then there's a whole younger generation of young of change makers, female change makers in their late 20s and early 30s, mostly, who didn't ever get to the glass ceiling, never had that hindrance, but were raised by women who have been and so have been told, just go do your own thing, kiddo, and do it right. And so they're teaming up together, and it's a powerful force. And then the beauty of it is there's also now a slew of women angels, financial angels who have made a killing in the tech world and who are underwriting these women. 
because they couldn't get the money because before the purse strings, strings were all also held by men mm-hmm. who were like, you don't know what you're talking about. I had a call like that yesterday with a man saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know what? I'm not going to quit on this phone call, but tomorrow I am. <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's, it's really inspiring because it's kind of not purposefully women joining together, but kind of because they've been pushed to join together. And, and I love this idea that there's now funds, you know, investment funds mm-hmm. that are saying we're going to help female entrepreneurs realize their dreams and then they hire women and it's just like the sky's the, you know the sky's the limit we could just we can change the world we know we can do it and now we're not having anyone telling us that we can't it just sounds like uh you know in the best possible way a whole new age a new sensibility a tidal wave of change and and it's happening i mean all this feminism it, all these years it's all kind of come together last. in a really genius way yeah and it's come together over something that men kept kind of brushing well yeah. it was either well, as you read in my book was created by men because it was you know goes back to the first days of the industrial revolution but also kind of scoffed off by men. Like, oh, we don't need to really worry about that stuff. All we really need to worry about is making money. And uh, and the women are going, but you're not going to be able to make money if you don't take care of humanity mm-hmm. and the planet. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they're doing. And, and they're proving very quickly that this is a viable economic business model. And it is the future. And it is that's the, the title, and the future of clothes. And the future of clothes. <laughs> It is certainly the biggest conversation in fashion right now, sustainability. I mean, I think from where I sit, um, not to say that, you know, there's still a lot of stuff being put out there without that kind of mindfulness. Yet at the end of the day, the the most uh, interesting um, subject, I think, is sustainability in fashion. And how are we really going to make it happen? And the biggest companies in the world now, they're all having to, nod to this. I mean, they all cannot ignore it. And many are really scrambling to try and find ways of making it make sense. But do you think that for a lot of them, it's still like they may be paying it lip service, but they're not really doing that much? Yes and no. There are some who are just paying it lip service and not really doing very much because they are of the mindset, why fix something that isn't broken? We've been making money this way for a long time. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing and we'll tweak what we have to tweak in order to meet rules or image. Um, It's not really greenwashing because greenwashing is kind of a thoughtful thing where you're like, we're going to say we're doing this and we're not doing anything. And we're, you know, trying to snow people. I don't think they're trying to snow people, but they also want to have to change anything. But then there are some who are changing. Uh, But they're only changing because it makes sense financially. Mm. They are not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They are not doing this out of responsibility to the planet and humanity. They are doing it because it makes good business sense, because it costs less to waste less, because it costs less to ship shorter distances. So maybe we should be sourcing more locally, that it costs less, you know, the Chinese, um, Wages have gone up and now are competitive with American wages. So, well, why don't we just produce in America then? Because 
you know, the state of Texas is going to give us a nice big break on our taxes for a long time and even give us some grant money if we build the factory there. So why don't we do that? You know, because we get tax breaks if we don't pollute as much, because we get money if we don't pollute as much. All that is why they're doing it, not because it's the right thing to do. Uh, uh, but you, if the yeah. result is yeah, who cares? Mm. Then fine. And then the next generation will do it because it's the right mm. thing to do. And the entrepreneurs are doing it because it's mm. the right thing to do. But if we can get the big corporations, those Titanics to shift even a little bit, it'll be great. Uh, okay. So let's just talk about, you know, the, the consumer out there, you know, the, the, a woman who might be listening to this and, and really, you know, wanting to read your book and maybe they've already read your book and they really want to um, be a lot more proactive with the whole movement. What would you suggest? What do you think people have to keep in mind when they decide that they need to perhaps replenish their wardrobe or, you know, just buy an item of, of clothing. Well, think about it the same way you do a refrigerator in a sense. You know, we've, we've embraced the, the organic food movement much longer ago. It's been really a solid 20 years that we've had farm to table restaurants and much more farmers markets and, and a backlash to fast food and processed food and more cooking at home and cooking with, you know, basic ingredients and the whole food channel revolution. And, I would say just do the same thing with, with, um, with clothing. Think about the origins of how things, how the materials are, what the materials are. Just like if you go to a farmer's market and you're looking at these heritage tomatoes or these heirloom carrots, you know, I just picked some purple broccoli in my garden this weekend. So, you know, think about, and, and is it fresh? And is it, you think about those things when you're buying them and you're cooking with them, we'll do the same with clothes. Is the cotton organic or is it conventional? Is the cashmere made of recycled cashmere or cashmere that was picked up left over from the factories or is it virgin cashmere? If it's virgin cashmere and it's at, at, at a fast food or fast fashion chain, it's really inferior quality. They've stretched the life out of it and it's not going to last very long. So pay a bit more to get something that's really good quality. Um, Look at, think about how you use and wear your clothes, washing your clothes, wash them less. You don't have to th wash your blue jeans a lot less. You do not have to wash your jeans every time you wear them. Far from it. You know, they were the original sustainable garment that was passed down from minor to minor, never washed. So, um, you know, wash your clothes on, on the short cycle with cold water. They last longer. So then if your clothes last longer, you wear them longer, you'll buy less. And you and have clothes love, like we have house love, right? Go back and find your old friends and shop your closet. Yeah, that is definitely something that uh, you've, you've spoken about before and that we all uh, think about the, the way we cherish our clothes and the sentimental cherish. attachment to clothes um, is a great thing. Think about not just spending money in a boutique that sells you new stuff, also think about spending money in a boutique that repairs your things and spending money in a boutique that sells you used things 
and and also giving your things on consignment so then you can make a bit of money. Never, ever throw away your clothes. Please, please, please. If it's you know, really bad, then put it in the compost. You also suggested the notion of uh, rental, you know, clothing mm. rental, which has become, you know, increasingly popular, especially for people going to big fancy events. Yeah. And not, not these days during the pandemic, maybe, but, you know, a gown that you might only wear once anyway, why buy it when you can rent it? I've recently yeah. read that the hottest area of rental right now is wedding dresses and I love that idea because yes it's a it's a year special day and you, but at the same time somebody else just as happy as you wore that dress before so it's bringing you good juju really good juju right so I, I think that rental is great it's great now it's tricky right now with COVID and germs and love, but I think we're going to sort that out at some point mm-hmm. but if you're going to a big fancy ball think of yourself like Cinderella and rent the dress that you would have never been afford, able to afford to buy. The 3000 dress, you rent it for 300 which is what your budget might have been to buy something. Looks spectacular. And then send it back after midnight. One of the greatest things about you, Dana, is that you have really managed to uh, keep up a kind of optimistic outlook on the world at large and even, you know, on the fashion business, because with all the horror stories that you've uncovered, oh. others would have, you know, just run screaming from the scene. Yet you continue to to delve into different aspects of fashion and, and continue to tell stories that need to be told, you keep coming back for more and you manage to maintain a, a, that air of optimism. How do you do that? How does that happen? So, you know, in the end, fashion is rooted in two things that I think are so important in, in our nature. And that is beauty and craft, working with the hands and behold, beholding things with the eyes. And those are really like elemental human instincts to adore and appreciate and cherish beauty to work with our hands and try to create beautiful things beauty and craftsmanship well thank you for uh, all the 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 craft that you brought to the whole area of reporting on uh, so many different cultural affairs but uh, fashion in particular for me i've just thank learned you. so much from you, Dana, and you've really uh, enlightened all of us uh, with your wonderful books and articles and, and the way that you speak about fashion. It's been truly illuminating. And in this case, in particular, you know, talking about sustainability and, and the future of clothing and how we may try and do our bit to save this planet after all. I think you've provided so much inspiration. So thank you. Just keep up the great work and uh, look forward to hearing a lot more from you. Take good care. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on this episode of Beyond Style Matters. Thanks for listening. To see video versions of the podcasts, check out tsc.ca slash style matters. You can watch Style Matters Thursday on TSC or on the tsc.ca website. Till next time, I'm Jeannie Becker.